Good to see you all here today. Uh, today is day two of our series for the month of December called Moving with God. Uh, moving with God is also the theme for 2020 for Living Hope. We are moving with God. How many say, I'm ready to move with God? Now, last Sunday, we introduced this series, and we talked about Mary and Joseph and how the first thing that God wants to move is your heart. In Luke chapter 1, the angel visits Mary, and the angel visits Joseph, or in Matthew chapter 1, the angel visits them, and, and all he's trying to do in that encounter is move their heart. And so often, God's not trying to move you anywhere. He's trying to move your heart somewhere. If he can move your heart, it's easy for him to move you. But if he can't move your heart, it's really hard. And, and what it, when, you're, when your body is moving, but your heart is not, when your lips are moving, but your heart is not, that's the definition of empty religion. The definition of empty religion is when God said, this people draws near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They're willing to go through the religious motions, but they won't give me their hearts. And so the first thing God does is come to Mary and Joseph to move their hearts. But today, we're going to talk about what happens when God moves your heart. And when God comes alongside you, as he did each character of this Christmas story, and says, I've got a powerful story to tell through your life, but the story will only be told if you're willing to move with me. Mary, you got to be willing to move with me. Joseph, you got to be willing to move with me. Wise men from the east, you need to be willing to move with me. Shepherds on the hillside, you need to be willing to move with me. If you're not willing to move, the story stops. And so God invites us on the journey. He moves our heart. And today, the journey begins. I want to draw your attention to the book of Luke, chapter 2. We're going to begin at verse 1. Luke, chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. I'm going to read... Uh, six verses. No, I'm going to read seven verses here. In Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, this is what it says. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. When we read those seven verses, a lot is collapsed into terminology that sounds more technical than emotional. But there's a lot of emotion happening in those six verses. A lot is happening there that sounds legal. There's a census transpiring. But I, I, today I want to take you into what is actually happening in the first six verses, the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2, because what's happening is more than meets the eye. First, Mary and Joseph say yes to God and their hearts move, but now the movement begins as a journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. In Bethlehem, Mary is going to give birth to God's purpose, not only for her life, but for the world. But between Nazareth and Bethlehem is something called a journey. 
And there's nothing so dangerous as a journey. You see, we talk about destiny in such lofty terms that we forget that there's a journey between your Nazareth and your Bethlehem. At your Bethlehem, you're going to give birth to the purpose of God for your life, but there's a journey between your Nazareth and your Bethlehem. And what we don't always realize is that in order to fulfill your destiny in Bethlehem, you've got to survive the journey. And not everybody survives the journey. Matter of fact, there was a journey to Bethlehem that happened in the book of Genesis chapter 35, and there was a young lady by the name of Rachel who was greatly with child during that journey, the same way Mary was greatly with child during this journey, and they were almost there. Almost there, almost to Bethlehem, and Rachel dies on the way, giving birth to her son Benjamin. And with her last breath, she tries to curse the thing that she was pregnant with. She tries to curse the destiny that God had set over her life. She tried to curse the thing that she had given birth to and call it the son of my sorrow. Do you know sometimes when the road gets tough and the journey is grueling and in the midst of difficulties, we begin to curse the very things that God has put on the inside of us. You begin to curse your destiny instead of bless it. And if there wasn't a Jacob there to intervene and say, no, my son shall not be called the son of my sorrow, Rachel would have succeeded in cursing the purpose of God for her life. Rachel died on the way to Bethlehem. We read these six verses and what we find is that Mary survives the journey. And the thing that I want you to understand is that this was no 45-minute journey. They didn't just, you know, hop on the BART and go up to Bethlehem. <laughs> they didn't hop in the car, you know, and Mary just curl up with, a, with one of them pregnancy pillows. You know what I'm talking about? This was, this, do you know how far it was from Nazareth to Bethlehem? 153 kilometers. About 90 miles. So the first component of the difficulty of the journey was the distance. It's a long way to Bethlehem. I know you don't like to hear that because you thought you were going to hit your destiny in 45 minutes. You want to hear stories about this is the day, this is your moment, this is your hour, this, you live your best life now, and it's time for you to maximize your moment, and you're going to enter right, and you think you're going to hear a great sermon and say amen and walk right out into your destiny. It ain't going to happen. There's a journey, and it's a long journey. And we need to begin to thank God that it's a long journey. The length of the journey feels to us to be a sign of the displeasure or disfavor of the Lord. We, all, we are way too quick to think that we're spending so much time on this journey because of unbelief. We're like the children of Israel in the wilderness. The journey should have lasted just a few days and it lasted 40 years. In actuality, sometimes the greatest compliment God can give you is to take a long time to do something in your life. Just ask Abraham. God showed up and said, you're the father of many nations and blessing I will bless you and multiplying you I will multiply you. I'll make your descendants like the dust of the earth, like the sands of the sea. 
and you all the nations of the world shall be blessed. Look up in the sky, count the stars. If anyone could count the stars, they could count your children. And Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And Abraham thought, this is it. This is the year. Me and Sarah are going to conceive this year. (laughs) How often have you felt like you were right on the cusp of your destiny? This is it. This is the moment. This is the time. This is the season. And matter of fact, a lot of people who come to this church, you sense that over this house. This is the moment. I can just feel it. We're standing right on the cusp of of an impending breakthrough. God's getting ready to break through and do something awesome. And three years later, we're still on the journey. The length of the journey is not a sign of God's disfavor, but a sign of His favor. Because one of the greatest compliments God can give you is to take a long time to do something in your life. Because when God takes a long time to do something in your life, it means that His purpose for you transcends the result. It means that His purpose for you transcends the fruit of of your destiny. It means it's not just about the performance of what you will do for God, but it's about who you will become for God. Because when God takes a long time to get you to your destiny, He's not simply shaping your fruit. He's shaping you. It means God has long-term vision for you. Smith Wigglesworth started praying for the sick when he was 16. You know when they started getting healed? When he was 50. He ended up having the most powerful healing ministry of the 20th century, but God spent 34 years shaping his heart through much failure. Now that you have said yes, Mary, now that you've said yes, Joseph, it's time for the journey. But the thing you've got to get in your heart is that the journey is not going to be quick. It wasn't just the length of the journey. It was also the weather conditions. You see, this journey actually transpired in the dead of winter. Don't you wish Caesar Augustus could have given this decree in summertime or springtime? How about fall? Nice 70 degree weather. You get to see the foliage or the leaves falling from the trees. Like, wouldn't it have been nice to have a nice breeze? No. Of course, he's got to give the decree in the dead of winter. It's freezing. There's a combination in certain places. There's snow, and in certain places there's rain at that time of year in that area where they would have had to make that journey. 90 miles in snow and rain, and Mary is in the ninth month of her pregnancy, which means it is the most inconvenient set of circumstances possible. And when we hit that moment of inconvenience, aren't we tempted to think, I don't think this is God. Because, of course, the definition of the will of God is convenience. (laughs) I mean, whenever something happens and it works out and it's convenient, what's the first thing? That was God. Oh, praise the Lord. (laughs) But if you actually go back and look at the story, the angel shows up at a particular moment to speak to, to Mary. You think God didn't know about the census? God timed it. He saw the census coming and he made sure that that journey was going to transpire during the ninth month. 
He made sure. Why? Because Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem. If it was the fifth month, they would have went to, Na- they would have went to Bethlehem, came back to Nazareth. Jesus would have been born in Nazareth. In order for the prophecy to be fulfilled, Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem. In order for that to happen, God had to have timed the trial perfectly. Do you realize that every trial in your life has been perfectly timed by God? To bring you into a particular place of fulfillment. But it's not convenient. The fact that it's not convenient doesn't mean it's not divine. Don't confuse convenience with providence. Sometimes your inconvenience is God's providence because God will not deliver you from that which is more profitable for you to endure. Can I say that again? God will not deliver you from that which is more profitable for you to endure. You've been crying out to God for deliverance. You need to ask Him for endurance. You've been asking Him to change your situation. You need to begin to ask Him to change your heart. Mary and Joseph could have cried out to God all they wanted. He was not delivering them from that journey. He wasn't changing the weather. He wasn't shortening the distance between Nazareth and Jerusalem, or Nazareth and Bethlehem. It wasn't just the distance, and it wasn't just the weather, but it was also the terrain. About 50 of those 90 miles of that journey transpired along the plain of the Jordan, and it's raining and it's snowing, which means the ground is either wet and mushy or filled with snow. We don't even know if they had a mule or if they had some type of animal for Mary to ride on. We don't know whether she had to walk the entire journey or if there was some assistance. But we do know that 90 miles for a pregnant woman in the ninth month of her term, they couldn't have traveled more than 10 miles a day. The average person could have traveled 20 miles a day, which means the journey took them twice as long because of what was going on on the inside of Mary. You see, sometimes you look at the person next to you and they finish the journey much quicker than you. How did he get there in five years and I'm, I'm only halfway there in 10 years? Sometimes what's happening on the inside of you is making the journey take longer for you and, and you think that that's a sign of divine displeasure, that you've displeased God. No, it's a sign that what's on the inside of you is so divine that God has to take more time. Yeah. The terrain, that first 50 miles along the plain of the Jordan was actually the easy part. Now they had to go through the mountains. They had to go through the hills. They had to go through the forest. And not only was the terrain very difficult to traverse because they were going uphill and then they were going downhill and it was thick with trees. It was a thick forest. The terrain was difficult. It was not easy. The terrain. Sometimes the terrain obscures the light of the sun. And you find yourself deep in the valley of the shadow of death. And the thing about a valley is that you can go so deep down into a valley that you can't see the sun because a shadow is cast right across the valley. 
and it feels like it's the thick of night when it's actually the middle of the day. Sometimes it's simply the trial that causes you to feel like you're in the midst of night, you're in the thick of night, when actually you're in the daytime. Actually, the only thing wrong is that you can't seem to see the sun. You see, notice David calls it the valley of the shadow of death. It's not death, it's just the shadow. And I I I don't care how big you are, David Guzman's back there, that's a big boy. If I didn't know him, I might be scared if I saw him on the street, but I'll tell you one thing I wouldn't be scared of is his shadow. And that's why David says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because I ain't afraid of no shadow. You see, your trial is simply, simply brings you into a shadow, into a place where death casts its shadow over you, but you're not afraid of the shadow as long as you know. David says, you are with me. What gives me confidence to walk through the valley of the shadow of death is the knowledge that you are with me. Which is why there had to be an angelic visitation before the journey began. Because if you can't remember the moment God appeared to you, the moment God came to you, the moment God manifested his love to you, the moment God called out to you, if you cannot remember the moment in which God manifested his love to you in a way that convinced you that you were called to the journey, you're going to die in the middle of the journey because you're going to give up. I could see Mary and Joseph traversing the elements, struggling on the way, but recalling in their hearts the angelic visitation, the word of the Lord. If I can simply remember the moment God spoke to me, every time you experience the presence of God, it is not an episode we tend to view the presence of God episodically. It's cool, God was here today. And not realizing that if God was here today, He was here today for a reason. Not just the terrain, but there were many dangers, especially in the forest area. There were tigers, there were bears, there were wild boars, there were robbers, thieves, and murderers. There's nothing so dangerous as walking towards your destiny with God. And it's it's a it's a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not a metaphor, but a paradox in a sense. Because when you're in the center of God's will, you're never in a safer place. But yet the center of God's will will lead you to the most dangerous places. Isn't that, isn't that the truth? Mary and Joseph are in the most dangerous place. They're traversing the forest. They're going through the mountains of Jerusalem and they're heading to Bethlehem. It's the most dangerous place they could be, but yet it's the center of God's will. Therefore, it is the safest place they could possibly be. And remember last week we talked about the difference between the spirit of fear and the fear of the Lord. If you're operating in the spirit of fear, you get out of there because it's a dangerous place. If you're operating in the fear of the Lord, you stick to the journey because it's the safest place. Whether you're safe or in danger is all dependent upon what's happening in your heart. Walking with God is dangerous. Moving with God is treacherous. Let's see, the cool thing is, you don't have to worry about not making the journey. I mean, one thing you don't have to worry about is, what if I just decide not to go on the journey? No, that's, that's not going to happen. 
I mean, Caesar Augustus made the decree. Like, they had no choice. It wasn't something they talked, let's pray about it and see if, if, if God is called. People do that all the time, right? I'm just going to pray about it. They pray about the will of God all the time, <laughs> right? But Mary and Joseph had no choice. They had to, I mean, this was, when Caesar makes a decree, you, did, you just did what Caesar said. It didn't, you couldn't send in a note and say, well, I'm sick today, so you better get your sick, sick self up and, you know what I mean? Caesar was like my mama when I was looking, you know, I was like, no, <laughs> my mama's here today. <laughs> Boy, you better get your sick self to school and be healed. <laughs> you sick? Come here, I'm going to lay hands on you. You be healed. You be all right. <laughs> you got the Holy Ghost. You're going to school. You don't have to worry about not making the journey. See, isn't that the thing about trials and tribulations is that you don't choose into them? You don't just got, God, I, I just got to skip this trial. So I'm going to have to sit this one out. I'm just going to take a sabbatical from trials for a while. You don't have to worry about not making the journey. You're going to make the journey. But you do have to worry about dying on the way. And so what do those threats actually attack in your life? The longevity of the journey, the length of the journey, attacks your faithfulness. And faithfulness is the state of being full of faith. And being full of faith, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. When you are full of faith, you cling to the substance of the things for which you hope. And you possess the evidence of the things that you do not see. Meaning that to be full of faith is to be full of expectation that there's an end to this journey. The loss of faithfulness brings with it a sense of the interminability of the journey. It means that you, you begin to feel like there's no end to this. This just keeps going. This will never get better. No matter what I do, I'll never break out of this. And then you start making treaties with your trial. And you hear Christians say foolish stuff like, I guess this is just my thorn in the flesh, which is simply another excuse to sit down in the middle of the journey and just die. The moment Mary and Joseph would have forgotten that there's actually a Bethlehem and that if we keep going, we're going to reach Bethlehem. They would just sit down. I was watching a video the other day, Casey Neistat, a famous blogger. He was showing, he's showing footage of when him and his brother, they climbed the highest mountain. It was, it was like the second highest mountain in the world. And he talked about the higher they got towards their, towards the peak of the mountain the more exhausted he felt. There's something about the elevation that saps the energy out of you. And he said at a certain point, he looks back and realizes that his life was in danger because he was so exhausted, he wanted to just lay down on the mountain and fall asleep. But he said at that elevation, had I laid down and fallen asleep, I would have never woken up again. There is a time to take a sabbatical and there's a time to keep pressing. In the middle of the trial, it's not the time to lay down and go to sleep. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Not, not when I'm right near the mountaintop. Not when I'm in the midst of the struggle. He don't make me lie down in the snow two, two minutes from the peak of the mountain. If you want to lay down and go to sleep, you better make sure that you're in a green pasture. You better make sure that you're beside the still waters. Come on, somebody. Yeah. Faithfulness. 
is the state of being full of faith. And for too many believers, we lack the capacity to continue to believe and expect great things because the journey is so long. If there's anything that I desire from the Lord, it's that even when I'm 70, 80, and 90 years old, I'm still expecting God to do great things in and through my life. That no matter what trial I've gone through, I'm still full of faith. Because here's the thing. I cannot be faithful in continuing to do what God has called me to do if I am not faithful. If I'm not full of faith and expecting that God, He who began a good work in me, will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The moment I lose that expectation, I lose my motivation. Because where there's no vision, the people cast off restraint. Another translation says the people die. They perish. They lay down on the mountain and they die because they lost the vision. They forgot that God is in the process of doing some awesome things that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. And there's a, there's a lot of people who can cry and weep and speak in tongues and fall out on the floor and roll around and get lint in your hair, but you can't believe, you can't believe for 45 minutes after the service is over. And the terrain... The second thing that the journey attacks is your obedience. The terrain. You see, obedience is easy when obedience is easy. You know what I'm saying? Like there's certain parts of the journey where it's so easy to be obedient, and it's so easy to be boastful about your obedience when you're obedient in the easy time. I was in prayer last night at 2 o'clock in the morning. I was talking to God, and I was in my word, and God was speaking to me. I resisted this temptation. Of course, yeah, you're, you're not in your trial. But as soon as the trial hits, now all of a sudden we got an excuse. Man, I was so discouraged last night. I just... I just said, forget it. I went to the bar. I just got wasted. Because, you know, I needed that. Somebody told me one time, I think Jesus would have even drank with me last night. I was so Mm-mm. Don't be bringing Jesus into that. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Man, my wife, she ticked me off so much. I said, just forget it. I just went to www.whattheheckamidoinghere.com. And... You don't realize that at the moment your obedience is tested, you're being qualified for what God is getting ready to do in your Bethlehem. What you don't realize is that obedience in Nazareth doesn't qualify you for anything. Obedience on the journey, that's what qualifies you for what God desires to do in your Bethlehem. And sometimes God has to circle you back. We're going to walk through this one more time. Because I need to prove your obedience here. Because your obedience, you're going to learn obedience through the things that you suffer. And obedience on the journey... It's going to qualify you for what God is going to do in your, in, your, in your Bethlehem. And that's why a lot of people die 
on the journey because they use the difficulty of the terrain as an excuse for disobedience. May I say to you that if at any point in your life, regardless of what you are going through, if you think you have an excuse for disobedience, you do not understand who God is. You haven't resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Meaning, they resisted obedience to the point of shedding their blood. They resisted disobedience to the point of shedding their blood. Meaning, even if I die, I'm going to be obedient. We haven't gotten there yet. So we've got no excuse. And then the weather, the atmosphere. You know what that corresponds to? Your attitude. A lot of people die on the journey because in the midst of the journey, they get a bad attitude. Can I say to you that there's a difference between attitude and emotion? Don't try to control your emotions, but control your attitude. Emotion happens to you. It's internal. It doesn't help if somebody comes to you and says, stop feeling that, Sharon. Stop feeling that right now. Does that ever help you? No. You can't just stop feeling. But you know what you can do? Is you can watch your attitude. Attitude is actually an act of judgment, internal self-judgment. Your attitude, what you display externally in your attitude, which creates an atmosphere. Do you realize that your attitude changes the weather in a room? Just go, go to your staff meeting this week and have a bad attitude. See what happens in this. Have a meeting with your wife, your, 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 your child. Have a family meeting. Just have a bad attitude. and See what happens. It gets real cold in there. It starts snowing and raining. Attitude is external. Emotion is internal. And attitude will demonstrate your judgment of your emotions. You see, it's one thing to feel something. It's another thing to feel it and believe that it's true. And secondly, it's another thing to believe it, feel that it's true, and feel that it's appropriate to act out because it's true. Bad attitude. You need to be able to feel forsaken and allow yourself to feel forsaken, but know that you're not forsaken and refuse to take on the attitude of the forsaken. Yeah. Psalm 22. You see what David is doing in Psalm 22? He's, he, is, he is stewarding his attitude while communicating his emotions. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from hearing me? And the words of my groaning. I cry out by day, but you don't hear me. But by night, it does me no good. But you are the Holy One the one who was enthroned in the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. But me, I'm a worm and not a man. You see what he's doing? Emotion. Attitude, but I'm checking my attitude. Emotion, but I'm checking my attitude. Emotion, but I'm checking my attitude. And no, notice that the psalm does not end with emotion. It ends with, but I'm checking my attitude. Amen. When you have to take a 90-mile journey through the rain and the snow, you don't have to like every minute of it. 
thank God for this rain. Thank, don't you hate those kinds of people? Don't they just drive you crazy? Oh, praise the Lord. How you doing, brother? Oh, terrible. Got cancer. Brother died. Lost my house. Lost my job. In bankruptcy. Probably going to be on the street, but I'm just blessed to the Lord. Hallelujah. Just get out of here. You ain't doing nothing but lying. The psalmist wasn't like that. Just read the Psalms. If the psalmist was having a bad day. He'd be like, man, 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 bro, bruh. You don't even know, but I trust in the Lord. But I know he's near me. The situation isn't good, but I know he's near me. The situation isn't good, but I know he's near me. But I know that he who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And the primary way that you manage your attitude in the midst of the journey is by staying close to the Lord. I'm at a season in my life where I have very short, a small bandwidth. I can't handle what I used to be able to handle when I was 27 and we started this church. And honestly, it affects me phys physiologically. I get to a certain point where I start feeling a little woozy. It almost feels like the vertigo is going to come back. And I just got to go lay down. And you know what, you know what I've realized when I get to that point? I'm in the flesh. You know what that means? I'm working by my own power right now. I'm depending on myself. And my situation forces me to stop, to go lay down, and to return to my center. To you, O oh Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust, O oh my God. Do not let me be, be ashamed. Do not let my enemies triumph over me. You, O oh Lord, are a shield about me. You're my glory and the lifter of my head. In order to make the journey, you must return quickly and often to your center. One of the most wonderful experiences is to be in the presence of someone who's in a struggle and is fully experiencing the struggle but fully trusting the Lord in the midst of it. There's an atmosphere that their lives create that when you come into that atmosphere, you feel strengthened. There are folks who are in the midst of struggles and you go to them to encourage them and you walk away feeling more encouraged than you have ever felt before. Why? Because there is nothing more delightful than the atmosphere of a life that is fully dependent upon God in the midst of a hardship. The journey's long, but Bethlehem is coming. Do you know what Bethlehem means? Bethlehem, house of bread. You're journeying to the house of bread. There's going to be an abundance of bread. Mary, when she got to Beth Bethlehem, Bethlehem, it, you know what it said? It said the days for her deliver the days of her deliverance had fully come. 
there is a day of your deliverance. And when it fully comes, when that day comes and God has already marked that day and set it on his calendar, he watches you in the midst of your struggle, but he has already scheduled the date and said, this is the date of your delivery. And when it fully comes, if you watch your attitude remain full of faith, watch your obedience, if you continue to walk with God on that journey, you're going to find yourself in Bethlehem at the time of your delivery. We've got a lot of passionate believers who lack endurance. What you need more than ever before is endurance. The ability to say, God, I'm here. I'm walking with you for as long as it takes. And here's the crazy thing. The journey always seems long while you're in it. But when the journey's over and your deliverance comes, you look back and say, it was just a few days. <laughs> I don't even know what I was tripping about. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Wasn't that bad. <laughs> look what I got. Mary went to the house of bread and gave birth to the bread of life. She went to the house of bread and she didn't realize that the bread was not in the house of bread. She was bringing the bread to the house of bread. You see, when you walk through your struggle, God is preparing you to bring the bread to the house of bread. The bread is on the inside of you. He's not sending you someplace to get something from that place. He's sending you there to bring something to that place. You see, that place can't fulfill its destiny until you get there. You can't fulfill your destiny until you get there. God is bringing you to the house of bread. Why? Because the bread is on the inside. But I'll end with this as somebody comes quickly to the keyboard. This, this, is, this is good. You, you need to get this. She senses it's time. It's time. It's time for deliverance. It's time for my destiny. It's time. It's time. Joseph, go check us into the hotel. We're in Bethlehem. Go check. Go on in. I know we're staying at the Ritz. Because, you know, when you're ready to give birth to the purpose of God, you think God's about to hook you up. <laughs> the journey is over. No more struggle. Now we're just about to waltz on in. I can't wait to get there because you know how they take care of you at the Ritz. They're going to carry all of our bags. They're going to set up the room. Joseph, go draw me a bath. Draw me a bath. Jo Joseph, I need you to schedule me a massage. I need a spa day tomorrow because we've had this long journey and now our warfare is over. And Joseph comes outside. He goes, I don't know how to say this, but uh, the hotel rooms are all filled. We'll get, find another hotel, Joseph. Yeah, see, that's the thing. Every hotel in the entire city it's filled the capacity. Well, Joseph, you need to fix this, okay? You just need to figure this out, Joseph. You should have booked this room a long time ago. <laughs> Orbits, Priceline.com, you just... Give me a Motel 6. I don't care, Joseph. I tried those too. But I do have a place but you're not going to like it. Where is it, Joseph? Come with me.
See, I know you've seen the pictures where Jesus is in a stable and there's the pheasants and the, you know, roosters and sheep and all these animals around him, right? Nah. It was a cave. It was a cave. That's where they kept the animals. And the only animals they had in there were traveling animals. They were mules. That, that kind of changes the picture, doesn't it? Because you see this nice, you know. They just made it nice, you know. Let's just deal with it. There was a feeding trough for the mules. That's what, that's what a manger is, by the way. Away in a manger. We've made that word sound nice and pretty. I mean, you know, away, try, try this, away in a feeding trough for animals. <laughs> the hits just keep coming, don't they? I thought I was there. And now at this point, where it's time for Mary to deliver, she's in a cave giving birth to a king surrounded by mules and probably other random people who booked their hotel rooms too late too. <laughs> Not realizing that even that part of the hardship is divine. Because it was by divine providence that the Son of God was not born at the Ritz-Carlton amongst the rich, amongst the successful of the world. But he was born in a cave amongst those who had nothing, amongst those who were left out, amongst the isolated, the broke, busted, and disgusted, as Bishop Jakes would say. He was not born in the lofty place. He was born in the low place. And sometimes God determines to give birth to a divine purpose in your life in the lowest place. And so what it takes, what it takes is to lift up your eyes above the trial and above the situation so that you begin to realize that something divine is happening here. See, it could have gotten to the place where all Mary saw was the cave and, and her worn out feet and her worn out body and the pain and, and all of the difficulty of the struggle. But what is being born in that struggle is so divine. And you know what it took? It took some wise men who had to come from all the way across the world to bring gifts and say, I know you can't see it, but I'm telling you that what you're giving birth to is divine. It took some shepherds from a hillside to come down the hill and say, listen, I know you might not see it because you're in the struggle. See, when you're in the struggle, sometimes you can't see how divine it is. And sometimes it just takes somebody outside of you to come and say, I'm telling you that what you're going through is divine. And I know you're in a cave. And I know the journey has been long. But I'm telling you that what God is doing in you is divine. Come on, somebody. You need to be encouraged today. I know the journey is inconvenient, but the fruit is divine. If you can just tolerate, if you can tolerate the pain, if you can count it pure joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work that you might be perfect and complete, not lacking anything. That's what it means to move with God. It means to move with God. It means to stop looking at the trial and start looking at the fact that I'm moving with God. 
I'm not just in a trial, I'm moving with God. I'm not just in a difficulty, I'm moving with God. I'm not just in a cave, I'm moving with God. And if God goes to the cave, I'm going to the cave. If God goes on a journey, I'm going on a journey. If God is in the snow, I'm in the snow. If God's in the mountains, I'm in the mountains. I am moving with God. And when you're moving with God, you can even forget that you're in a trial because all you see is God. When you're moving with God, you can forget that it's a struggle because all you see is the presence of God. The angel of the Lord encamps all about those who fear him and he delivers them. Today, the Lord has come to draw near you in the midst of the journey. You're not going to fear evil because he's with you. His rod and his staff, they comfort you. He's prepared a table before you in the presence of your enemies. And he's anointed your head with oil. I want you just to lift up your hands and open up your mouths right now and talk to the Lord right now. Talk to the Lord. Just tell him, God, I'm moving with you today. I don't care about the trial. I'm moving with you. I don't care about the circumstance. I'm moving with you. I don't care about the situation. I'm moving with you. Lord, protect my faithfulness. Protect my obedience. Protect my attitude, God. I know this journey is going to be long. Help me to be faithful. Some of us need to repent of our unfaithfulness. Some of us need to repent of our disobedience. Some of us need to repent of our attitude. You need an attitude adjustment today, some of you. You need a faithfulness adjustment today, some of you. You need an obedience adjustment today. It's by remembering that God is with you on the journey. Come on, talk. Stand up on your feet and lift up your hands and talk to Him right now.